Good morning. Welcome to Redemption Arcadia. My name is David. I'm a, a pastoral resident here. Um, pastoral resident is kind of like a pastor in training and glad to get the opportunity to preach. My, my role here is um, essentially kind of running the ground war. Uh, Frank is our lead pastor, our teaching pastor. He was up here just a second ago. He kind of leads, the, this is the way I've sort of understood this. I'm a military-minded guy, sort of. He leads the air war, and I get to lead the ground war. The air war kind of goes in, right, drops bombs, engages targets on the ground, and then the ground war comes in. Um, <laughs> you're laughing because it's dorky, but it's, I mean, this is how I view it, really. Uh, I, I, I oversee small groups, and I help people get connected, and my goal is to continue to point people to what Jesus is doing through the bigger picture stuff of preaching and teaching. Um, every once in a while, though, Frank gives me the opportunity to preach, and so I enjoy that. I, I, love, I love preaching. I also love fighter jets, so that's a good thing as well. <laughs> um, let's get started. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus today. We had a fairly short text out of the book of Mark, and we're going to ask ourselves this question, what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And have you ever thought about that? Like, what what if somebody asked you that, maybe out of nowhere? Let's say you're at a bus stop and you need to answer it quickly. And the bus is coming and someone says, hey, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What would you say? What would you say? You have 30 seconds, right? And I'm not saying you have to give the most sound theological answer with every detail um, possible, but what would you say? Hopefully it would include something to the extent of following Jesus means trusting Jesus above everything and above everyone else. And that's kind of my central point today, is that following Jesus means trusting Jesus above everything and everyone else. In fact, this concept of following Jesus above everything else at all costs, this is kind of the central theme of the Gospel of Mark. A few weeks ago, we started walking through the book of Mark, sort of verse by verse, and now we find ourselves in this beginning section where he begins this theme, and it really starts to emerge that following Jesus is something that Christians do at all costs. So before we get started in kind of what that means, let's do some background information. Let's look at the text. Verse 16 says that Jesus was walking by the the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee wasn't really a sea. It was more of a a lake. It was a giant lake. And the reason I say it's not a sea is because it wasn't salt water. It was fresh water. And it it was fairly large. It was 60 square miles, and I shouldn't say was because it still is a lake in Israel today. Um, It's fairly large, 60 square miles. To kind of put that into perspective, uh, Lake Havasu City, where I'm from, there's a lake right next to it, is about 30 square miles. So if you've been to Lake Havasu, if you've been boating there, you know there's quite a bit of of room to get around there, um, but that's only half the size of the Sea of Galilee. Or maybe closer to home, uh, Lake Pleasant. It's about 11 and a half square miles. So this is a lake that's considerably bigger than most of the lakes that are near us. And it was a lake that was surrounded by mountains. There were steep mountains kind of on the east and then sort of gentler slopes over to the west. And the fresh water of this lake was what contributed to the thriving fishing industry. There were a number of species of fish and fishermen uh, became all over the place at the Sea of Galilee where they brought in fresh catches every day and into the markets. And These are the kinds of fishermen we see here in the passage. They're bringing in a catch of fish, and this is where Jesus comes along, and and he says to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They're having a fairly normal day, right? They're they're getting their catch, and then Jesus shows up and just says, follow me. When I first read this story, 
I, I remember thinking, who is this guy? And how do they just respond in total sort of obedience just to following Jesus? Do they even know who he is? It, it, it always seemed confusing to me when I used to read this. But the fact is, these guys did know who Jesus was. They had some framework of, it wasn't like he was a total stranger. It seems like he might have been, but we know from the book of John that there was some pre-existing relationships with these guys. And so um, we see that in John 1, 40, and we won't turn there, but John the, the Baptist or John the Baptizer, he had been somebody who had gained quite a following. He was a prophet, and he was pointing people to Jesus, to the one true Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. And of John, he had several apostles, he had several disciples, and one of his disciples was Andrew, who is here in our text, who Jesus called. And so Andrew had some exposure to Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He had hung out with Jesus before, and it wasn't anything new. In fact, John tells us that Andrew had gone to Peter, or Simon, um, and said, hey, there's this Jesus guy, and we think he might be the Messiah. And so he wasn't a total stranger. He was a guy that they would have at least known, and yet they hadn't given their lives to follow him completely yet. But now things have changed. And so we see in verse 17, Jesus is standing right along the shore, probably of the lake, and he says, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. So follow him. Like, what does that mean? In, in what sense? Follow him? First, notice the intensely relational aspect of this. Follow me. Jesus doesn't, he doesn't wait around for people to, to come to him. He goes and he finds them. He goes to them. This is relational. Follow me. And this method of, of gaining followers, this was totally different than the way other rabbis did it in the first century. Other rabbis, they, they had people come to them and say, hey, I want to follow you. And so they, they didn't have to go out and seek people. They just kind of got to sift through um, applicants. And then they would get to choose who would become one of their followers. And so this method that the ancient rabbis did, as opposed to Jesus, it was a little more transactional, a little less relational. Moreover, the ancient rabbis, they also studied the Torah, which is, is good. It, it pointed to God, but it was more of a concept. It was more of a concept. But Jesus comes along, and what does he say? He says, follow me. Follow me. This wasn't just a conceptual following. This was a relational. Jesus was calling people into relationship. The earliest followers of Jesus, they weren't called to give their lives to understanding and embracing a concept, but to worship and follow a king. This is relational language. I remember the first time one of my students really got this, this relational aspect of Christianity, and she realized that this kind of set Christianity distinct from all other world religions. So I teach a class at, at GCU called Christian Worldview. And last semester, um, we were, Christian Worldview is a class that everybody has to take. If you're a Bible major, you have to take it. If you're a business major, you have to take it. Biology, you have to take it. Everyone takes it. Most of them are freshmen. And GCU is not a, a, a school where they make you sign a statement of faith, but they are a Christian school. So if you went there, you wouldn't have to say like, yes, I'm a Christian, I believe these things. But you do have to take a class called Christian Worldview. And the goal of that class is to just help people understand what is Christianity. And a lot of students are kind of miserable about it. They say, oh, I don't want to take this. You're just going to indoctrinate me. And 
That's not, that's not at all the goal of the class. It's just to simply explain what is Christianity? How do Christians view the world? And so first day of class, I start going over textbooks on the PowerPoint and say, you need this textbook and this textbook. And one thing I said is, I want you guys to have a Bible. I want you to have a physical copy of a Bible. And so if you don't have one, I'd like to bring you one. I don't want you to have just like a, an app on your phone or use the, the Bible on the internet. I want you to have a physical, you know, copy of a Bible. And the reason for that is because I want you to see sort of how it fits together. Um, and I want you to keep it forever. And so if you don't have a Bible and you've already bought your textbooks, let me know and I'll, I'll bring you a Bible. And so I had a number of students come up and write their name down. And I had like 15 or 20 students out of 45 not have a Bible. And so I um, told them I was going to bring them free Bibles, so naturally I came to the church and stole a box of Bibles. <laughs> and, yeah, Frank doesn't know that, but he does now. Um, and I brought the box with me the next week, and I set it on the front desk, and the students that had requested one came down and took one. And this one girl, she, she took the Bible, and she said, she said, thank you. She goes, I- I've never owned a Bible. And so I said, wow, well, great. I'm, I'm, this is my pleasure. It's my gift to you. And she said, in fact, I don't think I've ever even held a Bible. And I was like, wow. Well, my pleasure, all the more. And so one of their first assignments was to read through the book of Luke, which is another narrative account of the life of Jesus. And we had started talking throughout the lectures about how the Bible isn't just a rule book. A lot of people view the Bible as this is just a book of rules on how to live your life and what to not do. But I was making the point to my students that that wasn't really the case, that there was much more to it. And so when we were talking about that, she raised her hand and she said, this Bible, it seems like it's a story. It seems like it's, again, this girl has no exposure to, to the Christian message. She's never even held a Bible. And she goes, it seems like this is not about God that we have to get to, but a God who comes down to us. And I must have been grinning from ear to ear in excitement, like, yes, yeah, that's exactly what this is. And she says, this seems like a God who we can have a relationship with, who cares about us. And the other Christian students were nodding, and I'm I'm going, yes, yes. And it was cool to watch her over the course of the semester sort of get that more, is that this is about relationship. This is about relationship. We see this when Jesus says in verse 17, follow me, follow me. The next thing Jesus says is, I will make you become fishers of men. Um, what did he mean by that? What, this is kind of an odd phrase. Uh, Jesus used word plays a lot, and this word play was specific to this context. They found themselves in a situation of, of fishing, and his purpose here was to highlight um, the, the calling for the, these fishermen. What they were to do was to get trained by this guy Jesus to do exactly what he was doing right then, to call people to follow him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and calling people into community under the kingdom of God, under the one, the true reign of the one true God. This ingathering of of other people, it was to highlight God's reign in their lives through a relationship with Jesus, and this happened first with these two brothers, and then over time with two more brothers, and on and on and on, which is really significant. Just as an aside, we think of the seeds of the Christian church were sown here. This is where the followers of Jesus began, and they were faithful to share the gospel with more and more people, and we are a result of that. But um, let's look at how these two brothers 
responded. They, they committed by immediately, verse 18 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. These guys understood that following Jesus meant trusting Jesus above everything and everyone else. And this was demonstrated in their willingness to drop what they were doing, to leave their very livelihood, to forsake fishing. They realized the high cost of being a disciple of Jesus, and they didn't hesitate. They didn't hesitate. They left their nets, the text says, and they followed him. And then in verse 19, look down, going on a little farther, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. So here, Jesus encounters two more brothers. First, there was Simon, there was Andrew, now there's James and John. And these guys were also fishermen, and they were mending their nets in probably what was likely the the family boat. And we see this in verse 20, Jesus called them immediately. And we aren't told here if Jesus said the same thing, hey, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. But they responded in the identical way as the first two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They left everything and followed Jesus. The first two brothers, they left their nets. The second two brothers, they left their fishing boat and their dad and the hired servants in the boat. The fact that dad had some hired servants indicates he was probably pretty wealthy. And it also indicates that these hired hands were capable of continuing on the, the work of fishing. So it's not as though they abandoned dad and dad had to figure it out. He was still able to finish what he was doing, I'm sure. But I've always kind of wondered, how did this make dad feel? Like they just took off. Was he sad? Was he mad? Was he surprised? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but I always sort of read myself into it. How would, how would this have occurred with me? Like if I was fishing with my dad and Jesus comes along and says, follow me, and then I just took off. I think my dad, honestly, if you, if you know my dad, he'd probably warn Jesus. Like, hey, the guy can't catch fish. Like, <laughs> good luck trying to get him to catch people. Not any good. Uh, which is really sad because I'm from a town where there's a lake and I'm terrible at fishing. But anyways, the point is, these brothers, like the first two, they followed Jesus at all costs. They followed him at all costs. Not only did they leave their jobs, they even left their father because they knew that following Jesus meant trusting him above everything and above everyone else. So the question I find myself asking as I read through a text like this, and you might ask yourself this as you're kind of walking through, you might go, does this mean I have to quit my job? Does this mean I have to take up some supremely high, holy calling and quit my day job? No. No, that's not what this text is saying. Um, Have you ever heard this passage of scripture spun that way, though? That like, hey, if you're really truly following Jesus, then you would would quit your job and become a missionary? Or, hey, if you really truly loved Jesus, uh, you would stop listening to secular music, right? You would only listen to Christian music. Have you ever heard, I've, I've heard this text spun that way before. Um, when, I was, when I was a teenager, I loved Metallica. Loved Metallica. I, I still do to this day. But when I was 15 or 16, I had, I had collected all of Metallica's CDs. And I remember um, I had teamed up with some friends and we'd started a band. We were part of a local church back, back in Havasu. And we, um, we started playing heavier music and we were enjoying it. And then our drummer went to this youth conference here in Phoenix. It was called Acquire the Fire. Does anybody remember Acquire the Fire? Yeah, some of you are laughing. <laughs> so Acquire the Fire, while well, he was there, we didn't go, but he came back all excited. 
While he was there, the preacher guy said, look, if you're really serious about following Christ, you need to break all your Metallica CDs. You need to break all your Limp Biscuit CDs. You need to break all of your secular music and really give your life to follow Jesus. And so our drummer, he, he caught that and he followed suit. He busted all of his non-Christian music and then started listening to Christian music like Creed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but seriously, that was the substitute for a little while. And he came back and he encouraged us to do the same. And the other guys in the band, they, were, they hopped on board very quickly and they trashed all of their CDs. And I remember going, uh-uh. There's, there's no way. There's no way I'm getting rid of all my Metallica CDs, among other CDs as well. But the other guys in the band did. And I, I realized that they had, they had taken sort of a step of faith. As, as critical as I was of them, they had really shown their devotion to Jesus by letting go of something that they really, really cared about. And they seemed to really love and trust Christ at this point. But I didn't, still, the weeks went by, I didn't want that in my life. I didn't want to trust Jesus in any real um, devoted capacity. I, in my mind, I was fine. I was a good, a good kid. Like, I didn't do anything too bad. I went to church, kind of. Um, and my parents were good Christians who went to church and were involved. So I just thought, like, I'm good to go. I, I believe in God. I'm, I'm a good guy. I don't need this in my life. And so I resisted. But over time, I felt God calling me to trust him completely. And I knew that this would mean eventually getting rid of my secular music. And so one night, after several weeks of them having a seemingly newfound passion for Christ, I remember being in my room one night and just reflecting on what God was trying to tell me. And so I was listening, I was praying, and I was feeling sort of uncertain. I was feeling uh, sort of scared. And I just started asking God, what is it, what is it that you're trying to tell me here? What, is this something? And, and I started looking through my, my CD case, and I remember thinking, man, get rid of all this? Like, really? And then I felt... God speak to me. And not in like an audible voice, I don't want to seem crazy, but there was this faint sort of nudge in my spirit where God just, I sensed him asking me, do you trust me? And in that moment, I couldn't escape it. And I said, yes, Jesus, I trust you with my life. And so I trashed all my CDs that night. And it was sort of surreal. And um, I remember feeling thankful that I did it, but it was it was a time in my life where that was the first step of faith that I took to really follow Jesus. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, I don't want to tell that story to convey that listening to secular music, non-Christian music, is sin, okay? So if you've tuned out, tune back in and hear me say this. Listening to non-Christian music is not a sin, and I'm not saying that you should go home and get rid of your non-Christian music. What I'm saying is at that time in my life, the sin that I had to deal with was not secular music, but was loving that music more than I loved God. It wasn't a sin of music categories. It was a sin of idolatry. I idolized my music more than I loved God. And so I realized over time, Metallica and Blink-182 are not a problem, although some of their lyrics are questionable. Um, it, was loving, it was loving something more than God that was the problem. I had placed all of my satisfaction, all of my trust, all of my happiness in music instead of in Christ. But when I sat quietly in my room that night, 
something changed because I sensed Jesus calling me to himself to follow him completely. And in that moment, I realized that following him meant a lot more than just playing church, which I had done for years. It meant trusting him above everything and everyone else. This is, this is my story. This is how I came to Christ. I don't tell that story to say, look how holy I am. I tell that story to say, look how holy Jesus is. Jesus pursued me. I didn't pursue him. Jesus called me. I didn't call for him. And even when he did call, I didn't respond immediately in obedience. I resisted for a time. It was only after he changed my heart that the following of Jesus became natural. And even then, when I started to follow Jesus, it wasn't like everything was perfect overnight or even over years. And the same was true in the lives of these disciples. Although Simon, or, or Peter was his later name, although he immediately dropped his nets and followed Jesus, he was also one of the first to what? Drop his affiliations with Jesus when Jesus was arrested and his life was on the line. He denies Jesus three times. And then what happens? Jesus is taken and he's murdered on a cross. He's murdered on a cross. And in that moment, he pays for Peter's sin. Peter's sin of denial and all of Peter's sins in his place. And then the story goes, what happens? Three days later, Jesus comes back from the dead and he reverses the curse of sin and of death. Suddenly, following Jesus was more than just this invitation to follow him. It didn't stem from that only, but now it stemmed from Jesus' demonstration of power and authority and saying, I am the risen Messiah. So, so far my, my essential point has been this, that following Jesus means trusting him above everything and above everyone else. But on this, I, I need to be clear. Um, trusting Jesus above everything and everyone else isn't something that you do. Again, trusting Jesus above everything and everyone else isn't something that you do exclusively. It's something that Christ does in you, that he enables you to do. When he calls you to himself, confronts you in your sin, and conforms you into his image. This is Christ's work in you, trusting him. He calls you to himself, he confronts you in your sin, and then he conforms you into his image. And this is made possible because Jesus is the risen and reigning Lord over everything. That includes my life. That includes your life. He is king over everything. And when we respond to this, we begin to change. We begin to change at the moment of our conversion, and then it continues each day for the rest of our lives. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and you say, I- I'm not sure about this Jesus guy, I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer. Spend some time reflecting on what God might be trying to tell you. Ask God to, to come near to you and to speak to you. Praying and listening to God can reveal to us a lot. And if this is your first time, in a few minutes, our people, are, they're gonna come forward and they're gonna receive communion. We, we do this every week. It's a way for Christians to respond to what Jesus has done and to proclaim him in their lives and to remember his death. And so I would encourage you in that moment, um, just consider, if, if you're not a Christian, just sit quietly and reflect on what God might be trying to tell you. Listen and pray and ask him if he is calling you to himself. And if he is, do not, do not resist him. And not because I'm telling you to, but because Jesus is alive 
and he has the power to forgive you of your sins. For those of us that are Christians, how do we respond to this? Again, it's not quit your job and become a missionary or break your um, Katy Perry CDs, although that wouldn't be a bad idea. Um, <laughs> how, how do we respond? This central theme of trusting Jesus above all else, it seems obvious enough, right? Like, yeah, I get that. It's okay. It's like, I could have got up here and said, follow Jesus, you know, amen, and then walked off. Like, it's that short and clear of a text, right? But although it's easy to understand conceptually, it's much harder to put it into practice in our lives. I felt the weight of this with my music at a certain time. I felt the weight of this in other aspects of my life. I valued, you know, an education or a relationship or fill in the blank, right? We valued something higher than God. And so how do we put this into practice of following Jesus and not just making him an add-on but making him central? The answer to the obvious question is, I think, is also obvious. It's that we, we trust Jesus more by deepening our relationship with him, by deepening our relationship with him. And that can take place in a number of different ways, but I think of three ways primarily. The first is we spend time reading his word. We spend time individually reading his word. In any relationship, there has to be communication. And this is the way that God communicates to us. We hear the voice of our creator speaking to us through this book. Likewise, we pray, we communicate to God, which also seems obvious and simple enough, but hard to put into regular practice. And so in light of those difficulties of spending regular time in God's word and spending regular time in prayer, the, the third thing that we should probably do is do this, reading the word and prayer, in community with each other, with other believers. This is difficult, though, because we live busy lives, and it's hard to make that a regular part of our schedule, but it's not coincidental that Jesus here in Mark 1, what does he do? He calls a community of people to follow him. Not just isolated individuals, but brothers. And then more brothers, and then more. And pretty soon, he has a community of people. And as they walk through life together, they have deepened their relationship with Christ. We saw four brothers trust Jesus, not in isolation, not in individualism, but in community. If you have no regular community with other Christians, you're probably having a hard time regularly following and trusting Christ. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it is not God's ideal, and God wants for us to be in community. So if you're not, get plugged into a small group. I know the guy that is sort of in charge of that, so come, come find me, I'll point you to him. Um, no, seriously, we want to see you grow in your walk with Christ, and we do that in relationship with other Christians. This can be challenging at first, but it's what it looks like to follow Jesus and trust him above all else. The reality is, guys, we're all followers of something. We are all followers of something or someone. And we do this instinctively, whether we realize it or not, right? We follow our kids. We follow the news. We follow social media. We follow our parents, our spouses, our jobs, our dreams, our hobbies, our habits. We follow any number of things. We follow music. None of these examples of things that we follow are inherently wrong. God made these things as gifts to us for our enjoyment. But all of these things fall incredibly short when we make them into an ultimate thing. 
right? We take a good thing, like music, or we take a good thing, like a relationship, or a job, or uh, even our kids, as, as great as they are, and we make them into an ultimate thing. This is a problem. They're not, they're not made to be ultimate things. They can't actually sustain that. And so they become idols. We love them more than God, and then eventually, they come crashing down. They come crashing down. The only thing that will ever fulfill us is Jesus, and Jesus must be central. We follow him and we trust him. He can't simply be an add-on. He can't simply be something that we do on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or whatever. He's central because he alone is supreme. He alone is king. And to him, every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Let's pray.